Well, welcome back to Basecamp into the special episode series on suffering in the life of the Christian. Now, we've covered a lot in the last two weeks and are now moving into our final few episodes. And in today's episode, we're going to begin our time by asking, how does suffering serve God's purpose to make his glory known? How does suffering serve God's purpose to make his glory known? Now, before I answer that question, I'm going to begin with a story by David Hadji that appeared in the Atlantic a few years ago about a trip to a jazz club in Greenwich Village, a neighborhood on the west side of lower Manhattan in New York City. In that club during the last week of August, Hadji is at the club and the band leader is Charles McPherson, an alto saxophonist. As Hadji writes, although he is a superior talent, he's not a top jazz attraction, which is why he was scheduled for the slowest week of the year. And he continues, the performance was languid and my eyes drifted, setting eventually on the trumpet player because he was turned away from the audience and even from the rest of the band, staring at the floor. The trumpeter looked somewhat familiar, even turned away. And so during a piece by Charlie Parker, Hadju turns to the guy next to him and asks if it might be Wynton Marsalis, one of the most famous names in jazz. I very seriously doubt that, the man snapped back, as if... As if, uh, Hadju adds, I had asked if it was Parker, the person who had wrote the music himself. The next song is a trumpet solo. It's a ballad called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. Written for 1930s romance film, the piece, Hadju writes, can bring out the sadness in any scene, and the trumpeter appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, and it seemed at points nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, the trumpet player played the final phrase, the title statement, in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And it's at this moment where the room is perfectly silent waiting for the last notes. And then, bring someone's cell phone goes off. And here's what Hadji writes. He said, it blared a rapid sing-song melody and electronic beeps. People started giggling and picking up their drinks. The moment the whole performance unraveled. it. So he said, I scrawled on a, a sheet of newspaper. Magic ruined. But the trumpet player pauses, motionless, his eyebrows still arced, the cell phone caller scoots out in the hall. The chatter in the room grows louder, and the trumpet player is still frozen at the microphone. And he begins to play. He plays the cell phone melody, note for note. He repeats it and begins improvising variations on the tune. And the audience slowly kind of comes back to him. And in a few minutes, he's resolved the improvisation, changing keys a few times, throttled down to a ballad tempo, and ends up exactly where he had left off with the last two words of the phrase, right before he was interrupted. And so as Hadji writes, the ovation at the end of this was tremendous. And it turns out that the man with his back to the audience playing backup to a no-named band leader on the slowest night of the year was the greatest name in jazz. It was Marsalis on the trumpet. (laughs) Now, Now, you might wonder, what in the world does this story have to do with suffering? Why am I sharing this story? Well, it's because we see more glory in redemption than in creation, don't we? 
See, what is it that reveals who this trumpeter is? It's not his ability to play the piece. It's his ability to resurrect it from near disaster. We see more glory in redemption than in creation. And that is the basic principle that undergirds this episode, because at its core, that's how suffering can become a witness to the power of the gospel. And it's a thread that we see running all throughout Scripture. So think back with me to our study of Exodus that our church did at the beginning of this year and how Israel even got into Egypt in the first place. Remember, you remember God's plan played out in redemptive history exactly as he had ordained it to? How he gave those dreams to Joseph and then as Joseph shared them, how he suffered at the hands of his brothers as he was almost killed, then put into that pit and brought out and sold into slavery. I mean, the entire story stands as a beautiful showcase of the glory of God, his sovereign hand working throughout human history to accomplish exactly what he had determined to happen in human history. And what makes the story all the more beautiful in the end is the brokenness of sin that happens in the midst of it, and yet the sovereignty of God over even the most horrendous of events. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You meant evil. You intended evil against me, but God meant, God intended it for good. Thus, we see partially fulfilled that wonderful promise of God in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The nations are beginning to be blessed through the line of Abraham. And we see the beautiful picture of Joseph suffering well in a pattern of how we as Christians can suffer in hope, knowing that God is working in our waiting, sanctifying us, that he's with us in the fire and the flood. And if we fast forward a bit in the story, remember from Exodus how God doesn't just bring his people back to the promised land. Rather, he hardens the heart of the most powerful king on the earth so that it's only through God's miraculous, awe-inspiring strength that he can rescue his people from the land of the Egyptians as their man of war, as he decimates Egypt's GDP and proves their idols as worthless. They are counterfeit gods who are unable to stand against the true sovereign hand of God. And as we trace their stories, they left Egypt that night. Where, where Where does he lead them? It leads them to a dead end. Remember the Egyptian army closing in from behind, the Red Sea ahead of them? And so God's might and his glory are displayed as the sea is parted and his people are saved. Thus through their suffering, the power of God is put on full display in the nation of Egypt and the people of Israel and the nations of the world. And you and I recognize the glory of God. Thus the, the darkness of their immense suffering was ordained by God for their good, and his glory. Think about that in the book of Ruth as well. As it is only after Naomi lost everything that God transforms her life into a blessing for all nations as Boaz marries Ruth. And we see the family lineage of King David and ultimately Jesus. And only after they are thrown into a furnace so hot it killed the soldiers who bound them that God led Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the flames to humble the king. And this thread just continues into the New Testament as we see that it's only after Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is convicted in a kangaroo court and flogged and stripped and executed that the cross becomes his tool to save us from our sin. Do you, do you see the thread? Do you, you see how God works 
throughout redemptive history, God, God keeps his promises and always upholds and redeems his children. And this process is a great witness to the world. Sure, he lets things go pretty far as we try to prove that we can do things on our terms, in our own way, and through our own strength. But that always falls apart. And when everything seems hopeless, and only a miracle would, would could save God's promises from extinction, that's when we see that happen. <laughs> you, you see God's fingerprints all over this kind of thing. Through this, we see God's goodness, and we see more of his glory and redemption than we often do simply in the created. More glory in creating blessing out of rescue than in creating that blessing in the first place. Which is why suffering can be such a stunning witness to the power of God in our lives. Now that might sound encouraging, if we think about it, to know that God is sovereign over our suffering and that nothing can come to us but through the hand of God. That thus we can be confident that he is using even this terrible suffering for his glory as we are witnesses of his goodness in our lives. But, but it's still suffering, isn't it? it? It's terrible. I mean, think of Joseph who daily walked with the awareness that because of these dreams given to him by God, that his brothers tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. I mean, think of the dark nights of the soul that that guy went through, especially as he then suffered in prison for years of unjust charges and all of this happened before God's purposes were ever revealed. He had to walk by faith in the midst of not knowing what was happening. Likewise, Naomi walked through famine, moved internationally, and then lost her husband and two sons. And she walked through their deaths and burials, the lostness, the sadness, the heartache. And while we can read through that story in a few chapters, for her, these were years of heartbreak. In this side of heaven, she never knew what God was up to. In Job, he, he had no clue why all this was happening and why all this suffering was happening to him. We know from the beginning what's going on. We see Job chapter 1. We are able to see God's sovereign hand over the entire situation. We know of Job's innocence, which is why when we read his friend's remarks, we, we immediately know why they're so wrong because they don't know what we know. But even if they had known why they were walking through all these various things in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament doesn't mean that it makes it any easier to walk through suffering. Don't think it does. Jesus, for example, he knew about the oncoming suffering, and yet, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Right? So even, even, even Jesus, knowing the outcome, knowing why all this is happening, he still is able to have joy in the suffering because he, he knew the reward for his suffering was our salvation and the glory of God. Thus, this thread is over and over again in the Word. We see more glory in redemption than in creation, and yet redemption so often starts in suffering. In this, we, we see God redeems to a good state from a bad state, and the bad state involves suffering. So in this, we might wonder, well, what is our part in all of this? Well, think with me about Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. This is what it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. If we were going to think through that, 
paraphrasing that passage a little bit. And we, we might might see that and say, well, in light of suffering, how can we paraphrase that? Well, it might, it might be a little like this. Conduct yourself as you suffer in a way that is truly supernatural, never even crumbling or arguing. Why? Because through suffering, we are made holy. Suffering produces endurance in our lives, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Thus, as our lives look increasingly different from those around us, we will shine like stars through the night sky. To expand on this briefly, right? although a mystery, I, I do find it to be true, that as Charles Spurgeon explained, this is what he wrote, he said, When the black clouds gather most, the light within us is always the brightest. When the night lowers and the tempest is coming on, the heavenly captain is always closest to his crew. It is a blessed thing when we are most cast down. Then it is that we are most lifted up by the consolations of Christ. That's beautiful. right? When we live our trials out in faith, holding fast to the word of life, the gospel that we hold out to the world will be seen as it really is, the power of Almighty God. Now, I mentioned in the first episode that, that this is at first overwhelming. Right? Suffering is a struggle for faith because it challenges God's claim to be both good and all-powerful. Remember, as Martin Lloyd-Jones explained, that faith means taking the bare word of God and acting upon it because it is the word of God. It means believing what God says simply and solely because he has said it. But my goal and our goal as Christians isn't simply to survive suffering. It is to conduct ourselves in such a way as to actually point to the excellence of that same God who is leading us into times of suffering. Now, absent from the rest of the episodes so far, this wouldn't make sense. But hopefully, for those of you who have listened along to the other episodes in this study so far, that, that, that we're beginning to consider having trusted God so much, our, our aim and our hope is that we would be content with God's will even in the midst of suffering. That we would still trust Him, love Him, remain steadfast in hope, knowing that God is all of these things. He is sovereign and good and wise and just. He's all-powerful and none is thwarting His will, which means even this suffering that we are walking through is not thwarting the will of God, but rather is accomplishing the very purposes that God has intended for it to accomplish in our lives. See, having trusted God so much, or are we content with his will even in the midst of suffering? And, and then how do we live through suffering in a way that points the world to him? How do we... How do we then leverage suffering in our lives and then it comes through his gracious hand into our lives? How do we use suffering in our lives to point our affections to him and to point the world around us to him? Now, in thinking through this, we're, we're going to spend the rest of our episode answering two questions. First, how does suffering proclaim the power of the gospel? And secondly, with that in mind, how can we conduct ourselves in suffering as to point to Christ to be a witness of him and his glory? So let's take that first question. How does suffering proclaim the gospel and the power of the gospel? 
you ever thought about that? That that there is there is a kind of power of the gospel that is on display in our suffering and as we proclaim the gospel in our suffering the power of the gospel changes changes things beautifully and as we fill up the afflictions of Christ and the sufferings of Christ for those around us now now the best way to answer that question how does suffering proclaim the power of the gospel the best way to answer that question is simply to see how this happens in the bible and so there's four categories that come to mind first by changing our circumstances. So the first of these is just merely logistical. But I think of the first chapters of Acts. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 that his followers will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right, so, so what do the Christians do after Pentecost? They stay in Jerusalem, right? Through Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4, all the way to Acts chapter 7. But then with the stoning of Stephen that we read about in Acts chapter 8, we see that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Thus, through suffering, the early Christians are launched out into Judea and Samaria and into uh, the, yeah all those surrounding areas, which is exactly where Jesus had told them to go. Thus, sometimes God uses suffering to drive his messengers into new places beyond what is familiar, and with them goes the gospel. That's the first way that suffering proclaims the gospel. The second, by making others bold. Our suffering can make others bold, and the power of the gospel will be, be emboldening to others. I experience this a lot through the sufferings of James Coates and Tim Stevens. Their suffering made me bolder in my own proclamation of the gospel as I saw them faithfully live out their faith as they walked through suffering. And I know their suffering did the same in your lives as well. When I hung out with James almost a year ago, that's exactly what I told him. In fact, I, I shared that wonderful verse in Philippians where Paul was talking about his own imprisonment and how that made others more confident in the Lord and more bold to speak. And that's exactly what happened in my own life by watching James suffer. See, because of Paul's sufferings and because of the sufferings of other Christians, it leads us to speak more courageously and fearlessly. Therefore, friends, don't discount when we walk through suffering and model faithfulness for those around us. How we can fill up the afflictions of Christ for others and be an example whereby others are much more bold in the gospel than they would not be if they did not see us walking through sufferings. Which means, as we walk through cancer and we faithfully trust God's word and his character in the midst of our cancer, Others are made more bold in their own faith. There is power that, of, of the gospel that is on display in our suffering that, that, that is just not there when things are going well. That there's a power and a beauty and a mysterious emboldening of faith that happens as a result of that. Friends, don't discount the profound effect that your suffering can have on those around you who are not suffering. Rather, live in such a way that emboldens us to share the gospel as we see your example in suffering. Now, thirdly, suffering showcases the hope of the gospel. Think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We read, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you. Now in this, Peter assumes that a life of suffering, if lived well, it is a life that looks different from the world because it doesn't fear the things that the world fears. It is a provocative life. And if your life is provocative like that, there's going to be lots of questions. So be prepared, be ready to answer them. And then fourthly, suffering well displays the value of knowing Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Friends, God isn't glorified when we choose him for his gifts. God is glorified when we choose him as what is truly valuable over and above everything else. When we lose what this world values and yet don't lose heart, it tells them that we have grabbed hold of something far more valuable than they ever imagined. And that commends the gospel. So so those are some ways that suffering proclaims the power of the gospel. Now, with that in mind, how do we conduct ourselves in suffering as to point to Christ, to be a witness to him and his glory? What is our role? How can we do this? Well, most fundamentally, do what we've been talking about in this class, right? Fight for faith with God's word. It lean on others in our church and, and so forth, right? If you suffer in faith, you will commend the gospel. But beyond that, there are, there are a few other pieces of advice I can give you. You can clump these together into kind of three categories. Firstly, who we should talk to when we're suffering, what we should talk about when suffering, and how we should live in suffering. So firstly, who should we talk to in suffering? Now, in the last few episodes, we've focused on your talking with Christians in times of suffering. But beyond that, don't forget your non-Christian friends. See, they won't share the same hope and perspective, but they care for you. And watching how you grapple with this could impact them profoundly. Now, now you might do that by accepting your non-Christian friends' offer to help uh, in various ways. And as you do, share with them the hope that you have in Christ in the midst of suffering and how they can have that same kind of hope. So secondly, what to talk about then in times of suffering? Well, talk about your suffering. Be honest and real, even with unbelieving friends about what you're struggling with. Right? Just because you're a Christian does not mean you do not struggle. It just means that you struggle for different objectives with a different hope and with a different strength. Of course, remember the difference between describing what's going on and complaining. Right? After all, as we saw in Philippians, not complaining is perhaps one of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of the gospel in the midst of suffering. Right? The difference between describing my struggle and complaining is a difference of heart attitude. Right? Describing my struggle is in the context of my faith, even weak faith, that God cares and that he is in control. And now complaining says, I don't deserve this. God has made a mistake. He doesn't care. So, so we need to be careful to describe our suffering as the psalmist do in the context of faith. And being honest about our struggles also recognizes what Jesus said in Matthew 26, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we should be thankful for the difference between lack of faith and weakness of the flesh. Even God's greatest men of faith often trembled physically at the prospects which confronted them. Like, see that, for example, in Habakkuk 3.16. So to to be weak in the flesh doesn't necessarily mean you don't have faith. Thus, where possible, talk about your situation with unbelieving friends, using the same words and ideas that you do when you talk with your Christian friends. 
I found this particularly helpful and freeing, that we can use language of God and Scripture almost matter-of-factly. Of course, you may need to de, uh, de-Christianize your language a little bit. They might not understand some words that you're using, so clarify what you mean when you're talking with your non-Christian friends. But if you're struggling for faith, say that you're struggling for faith. If you're finding God to be a comfort to you, explain what that looks like. Right? Your answer to the question, how are you? It should be pretty much the same no matter who's asking you the question. We should be honest about that when we're walking through suffering. Now, we also need to be warned when walking through suffering that there is a way that we can walk through suffering that acts as if everything is fine and dandy, like you've never been more victorious and things aren't terrible. We may not want to say things out loud because by speaking it, we give that power over us. That's what some Christians think. They think they just need to play the glad game and put on a fake smile and fake it till they make it and talk about how victorious they are as they're catching a blessing in the midst of this suffering. Friends, those kinds of attitudes and actions come across like suffering doesn't hurt or isn't a challenge to your faith. And and it doesn't recognize the reality of suffering in the world, nor does it showcase the value of Christ. All it does is merely highlight your lack of integrity. Honestly, you, you can only fake being okay so long if you don't really trust in the God you profess. Eventually, Christians and non-Christians alike will just see right through it. It's fake. So don't do that. And, and, and make sure you talk about the gospel. Talk about the hope that you have in the gospel and through suffering, how God is drawing near to you. I'll also make sure that you can explain the reason for your hope, as we saw in First Peter. That's often more personal. People might say, man, I can't believe you're still married after what your spouse did to you. And you could say, really? Would you want to be interested in knowing why? Well, Sure. I'll warn you. Now, I can't share the story without talking about faith. Oh, that's all right. All right, so, and then and then off you go, right? Explain where your faith comes from and why you can believe. That's a powerful connection to the witness of your life. Now, thirdly, how to live in the midst of walking through suffering. Now, there are three things we see in the book of 1 Peter that pertain specifically to living in a way that commends the gospel. It'll be helpful to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter if you can, but if you're driving, just Listen, you can go back and look at it later. Like many letters in the New Testament, 1 Peter begins with the truth of the gospel, the truth of who we are as Christians in chapters 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. Then in chapter 2, verse 12, the book turns to talk about what we should do in response. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right. So, so the goal there is evangelistic. The context laid out already in the book is one of suffering, and, that, and, the, and the means is the way we conduct our lives. Our lives are to be provocative. So what exactly does that involve? Well, the first thing Peter mentions is probably one you wouldn't expect, but it's the main thrust of the whole rest of the book. Look at the first phrase of the sentence, verse 13. Be subject. Right. So we see be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 18, be subject to masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, be subject to your husband. 5.5, five, young men be subject to the elders. It would, it, would seem, it would seem that the main way Peter has in mind that we commend the gospel while suffering is to respect the authorities that God has placed over us. Why is that? Well, keep in mind that suffering is a struggle for faith. And so suffering is a challenge to God's authority. And one of the ways we show the world that we are trusting him is by submitting to the authorities as best as we can, as long as they're not sinning, We submit to the authorities that he has placed over us. 
I think of a common objection to Christianity. I could never trust in a God who allows evil to happen. Do you see the connection between suffering and authority? Of course, earthly authority can be abused and corrupted. And the Bible never tells us to submit to authority when doing so means disobeying God. But the essence of authority isn't repressive. It's the source of blessing. It's God's idea. So when we're suffering, if we respect authority, we live in a way that turns this world's problems with suffering just completely on its head. And that is provocative. Now, I realize that might be a new concept for many of us, but just keep chewing on it and reading through 1 Peter. The more you think about it, the more the connection between suffering and submission will make sense. Submission to God, submission to who he's called you to submit to, and how we live our lives as Christians. Right. So very practically, if you're suffering because of an unfair boss, go out of your way to show respect and honor them and how you talk about them. Even if you're working through the appropriate channels to limit their negative effect on the organization, and people will notice. Also, if you're able to get out of this really toxic work environment, avail yourself and do so. That doesn't mean you have to stay there. You can find another boss, another job. But while you're there, how you talk about them and how you show respect, even when they're being unfair, commends the gospel in ways that your coworkers are not doing. And they're like, why are you joining with us in this? And you say, well, here's why. As a Christian, there, you know, there's these, and, and then you can offer you. So, that then brings into focus Peter's second command for those who are suffering. We see in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Following Jesus' example, we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Now, that's, that's important to remember. Our trust isn't finally in earthly authorities, especially when they fail to protect us from injustice. We submit to earthly authorities because we entrust ourselves to God. And if we don't entrust ourselves to God, we act during suffering as those who are fearful or bitter or anxious or vindictive. But when we do entrust ourselves to God, it produces a life that is very strange to this entire world. And then thirdly, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we see there that we are to suffer with a clear conscience. It's a theme that Peter hits on several times. When, when, you're, when you're suffering, it's, it's tempting to cut corners. But in times of difficulty, your life is under especially sharp scrutiny. So be careful to ensure that your conduct is above reproach, so that the end of verse 16 says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, this is a lot to take on board. I, I know that. <laughs> Strategies for suffering and a way to bring glory to God is, is difficult. But it is the joy that we have to walk through as Christians as we walk through suffering. And it's impossible, apart from God the Spirit empowering us to live this way when we go through suffering. And that's exactly the point, isn't it? See, when we live in this way, trusting in God in the midst of suffering, looking forward to his future coming kingdom and walking in this world in a way that honors him and talks about our our suffering in a way that honors the Lord, that recognizes his sovereign hand in it and our trust in him, even though we cannot see. When we live this way, the world cannot help but sit up and take notice because there's something so obviously supernatural about this kind of life. So live in this way, be honest and use biblical language as we work out our faith and let the glory be to God. After all, we serve a God who's in the business of doing the impossible. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Basecam as we've been continuing this study on suffering. 
Again, we want to thank the wonderful folks of Capitol Hill Baptist Church for letting us have a lot of the meat and bones of today's uh, discussion on suffering as a witness and how we how we walk through that as Christians. I pray that this series is continuing to be beneficial to you as we're thinking through how do we walk through suffering in a way that honors God and is faithful to His Word. So, till tomorrow.